0: S18A0035, Leroy Willis versus the state, Andrew Fleshman for appellant, Kevin Armstrong for appelli. Mr. Fleshman, you're ready. I am.
1: May it please the court. This is a fairly straightforward issue. Mr. Willis argues that the judge violated 17857 by telling the jury that the parking lot where he slept was the scene of the crime. And the facts of this case aren't all that complicated. Uh, Mr. Willis slept in this truck in a parking lot of Boyd's tire shop. One morning, there was a dead body there. He told police who first arrived that he didn't know her, but DNA evidence would later show that he had had sex with her between 24 hours to 72 hours from her death. so his defense at trial, especially given there were a lot of similar transactions, was based almost exclusively on this statement from an investigator that the body had been moved, that leaves had bunched up underneath it, that there was, there was evidence of dragging, and thus someone must have killed her elsewhere after they'd had consensual sex and then brought her back to the parking lot. That was the best defense he could muster on those facts in this case. So the trial court gave an instruction to the jury on Miranda. The instruction was supposed to sort of let the jury know Well, here's one statement, here's another. And in that instruction, the trial court told the jury, now ladies and gentlemen, there are two statements attributed to the defendant. The first statement was allegedly made on May 23rd, 1996, when the defendant rode a bicycle to the scene of the crime. The argument here is that by telling the jury that this parking lot was the scene of the crime, he foreclosed the jury from finding otherwise. Now the state argues at length that in many points in this case, defense counsel (coughs) and the prosecutor called this the crime scene, And they say that those phrases mean the same thing. They don't. Yes, Your Honor, absolutely. A primary crime scene is the place where a crime has actually occurred. A secondary crime scene is a place where evidence is recovered. So instance, in a murder case, you might say that a body is the crime scene, a place where a body is found is the crime scene, even though it is not, in fact, the scene of the crime. Here, there was only one place where evidence was gathered, but the single disputed point at trial was whether this parking lot was the scene of the crime. Just like in Rouse v. State, we're telling the jury this, hap- this case happened in Muskogee County. Yes, but this was a heavily disputed element of the case, Your Honor. In this case, not only did the prosecutor argue at length that the body had not been dumped, that the victim had been killed there. She even argued in closing that the defendant was overly focused on this point, that, didn't matter whether it was, was dragged. She, she was just obsessed with it because it was the only good fact in her case. So yeah, this was heavily disputed. And even the state below when they argued that this was harmless error, they said it's harmless error because the jury heard evidence on both sides of this issue. That's the essence of a disputed claim.
0: Counsel, if, g- given that the parties had referred to it as a crime scene, would it have been improper if the judge had said in this instruction had called... It a crime scene as opposed to the scene of the crime? It would not have been improper, Your Honor. Okay, well, why should we conclude that reasonable jurors would perceive some meaningful difference between the term crime scene and scene of the crime? Because there is a meaningful difference, Your Honor.
1: Because when you say that some place is the scene of the crime, you always mean it's the location where the crime occurred. Whereas if you say something is a crime scene, you mean only that evidence was gathered there or that the crime occurred there. Who,
0: who means that? Um, with respect to your definition of crime scene.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in forensics, you typically say primary or secondary crime scene. You're describing a crime scene. And people, in normal phrases, use it in this way, that there could be more than one. For instance, you hear on cop shows a police officer saying, this is now a crime scene. We're describing an area where the public can't go. What he means there isn't that this is where crime has now been committed, but this is now an area under investigation by police. We've marked it off.
0: Wouldn't you have a better argument if the judges said the scene of the killing? Yes,
1: I would have a much better argument (laughs) if the judge had said the scene of the killing. Um, No one uses the phrase the scene of the crime in the entire trial. The only time anyone comes close is when the prosecutor is questioning the defendant and she says, is this the scene of the murder? Um, And that's what I'm arguing the jury took it to mean. The scene of the murder, the scene of the crime. Now, if the court doesn't accept that definition and that difference, then it's a very easy opinion to write. It's just this one issue. Your job is basically done. But I'd like to move on to the second part of the argument here, which is that this, the older version of 178.57 should apply, rather than the newer version. Um, and the reason for that is pretty straightforward. 178.57 is a rule of evidence. And Justice Scalia and Landgraf suggested, and Justice Blackwell suggested in Piat that we should adopt the rule that we go to what conduct is regulated. Here, the new 178.57 regulates the conduct of three people. The trial judge, who cannot make a comment on guilt under any circumstances, or else it will be reversed. Trial counsel, who now has a duty to object and the appellate courts, who now have a different duty on the standard of review.
2: Can I ask, I mean, a statute doesn't have to be only one thing. And it seems like 178.57, both the old version and the new version, is both an evidentiary rule, judges are not supposed to comment on certain things, and then a rule of appellate review, what happens if a judge does comment? And and the new statute imposes an explicit duty to object, right? That's correct, Your Honor. Okay, where where do you get under the old statute that counsel did not have a duty to object? Because there was no affirmative duty stated in the statute that she had a duty to object. Well, but there is a duty stated in Georgia law generally that counsel is required to contemporaneously object to any error at trial. I mean, we state that broadly, it's a rule of common law I think in every American legal system, very strong rule in Georgia. Now there, are, that's that seems to be the duty. The consequences of violating that duty of counsel, violating that duty, vary in various contexts. But we're you you say repeatedly in your brief that under the old version there was no duty of counsel to object when the when the trial court broke the rule. Mm-hmm. Do you have a case that? that actually says there was no duty to object? There's
1: no case that says there's no duty to object. It simply says that failing to object does not vitiate the claim on appeal.
2: Right. That is a statement about what happens on appeal. Right. It does not say counsel is—and some of your argument is, well, under the old law, counsel had the right to sandbag and affirmatively try to allow errors that could be resurrected on appeal to force the whole system to go through you know, crazy retrials because of of something that had no effect. I don't know where you get that. Where, where does it say that counsel had the right under the old rule to sandbag? Well,
1: I guess my argument there is simply by by stating affirmative, there was no duty to object, just like in Rule now, Six.
2: Where did we say uh, there was sorry. no duty to object? In uh, any case, we had hundred cases. <laughs> I'm uh, paralleling. Sorry, Rule Six O Five. So in Rule 605 of our
1: Rules of Evidence, we decided we're gonna make a rule that judges can't testify in cases. And we decide we're gonna also make it the rule that you don't have to object to that. Mm-hmm. And you read the notes for that, why did we make it so that you didn't have to object for that to preserve it for error? Because people were worried that if you had to object to the judge, you would be cowed. You would be afraid of how it affects your client. And that is a mitigating circumstance that might cause a reasonable lawyer not to raise an objection, not because he's trying to sandbag, but because he doesn't want his client to suffer for questioning the trial judge's judgment.
2: Rule 605 is part of the, well, the adopted federal rule, right? That's correct, Your Honor. And it expressly says counsel has no duty to object. That's correct. We're, in all of the law under 17.857, again, there were probably 100 cases before the law was changed. There's no, nothing I could find says counsel does not have a duty to object. The general rule in Georgia is counsel on both sides, defense counsel is supposed to help the court avoid retrials.
1: And yet we have certain longstanding exceptions built into our rules. For instance, look at sufficiency. Now if trial counsel doesn't make a directed verdict motion on venue because he's worried about the evidence reopening, or he doesn't make a directed verdict motion on sufficiency because he's worried more evidence will come in towards an element that is disputed, the federal system, that often. Bars the court ruling on it unless it's plain error, but here in Georgia we have a longstanding exception to that rule because we accept basic fairness, and that's the only argument I can see the court making for why we do this rule. Requires us to make to hold the case insufficient if it is insufficient.
2: So there as well we've said that there is sort where, of a, where does that rule come? Where is that a rule, other than our practice in murder cases? Yes.
1: Well, the court of appeals will also often rule on sufficiency in cases where it's not raised. Right. Yeah even if no directed verdict motion is made, even if trial counsel has not called this to the trial judge's attention and there's no motion for new trial. So while you might say that Georgia has a strong history of saying that you have to object to get relief, in fact, we have exceptions that other jurisdictions don't.
0: What, ab- what about, as I recall, the fact that defense affirmatively agreed to the language, does that matter?
1: Well, here, it, it matters potentially in two ways. First, I think it, 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 she didn't affirmatively agree to the scene of the crime. I think what the court said was something like the scene, which again, if it had been the scene, would be fine. But second off, it means that assuming she affirmatively waived the issue, then there's no review available for this. Then the change in law means that the defendant has gone from having a potentially meritorious claim on appeal to having no claim at all. And if that's the case, then it is more troubling that the statute would be retrospective, even if their end result might feel more fair. Um, in short, Because I believe this statute primarily regulates the conduct at trial, and it is a rule of evidence, very similar to Rule 605, this court should hold that it does not apply retroactively to trials that have already occurred. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Fleischman. And uh, Mr. Armstrong uh, for the appellee.
3: Your Honor. May it please the court, Uh, my name is Kevin Armstrong. I'm from the Fulton County District Attorney's Office and I'm arguing on behalf of the appellee. Uh, There are a number of different issues that um, the defendant's claim has raised in this particular case and so I just wanted to go with the last thing that they talked about first. Uh, I do think it is important that (coughs) trial counsel agreed with this because essentially what happened was they had a situation where they had two instances in which the law that the jury was to apply differed. And so they had to distinguish those two instances in some way, that's what the state raised with the trial court. And in discussions on what the charge of the court would be, they discussed how can, <coughs> we, how can we do this in a way that makes <coughs> sense for the jury. Uh, and it was something that they were concerned about. They talked about maybe saying the scene, but they left it unresolved in order to move to the other Uh, charges. Uh, The court indicated that they were giving them a copy of the charge and pleaded at the end of that day for the parties to read over them so that the court did not need to go back over the charge and have further discussions more than just very specific ones the next morning. The next morning, the court gets to, uh, the judge gets to court and asks them specifically, are all of the charges okay? and trial counsel said yes. Now I think that's significant because this is obviously in the context in which it's presented. It is without doubt that this statement was made in order to delineate for the jury the two statements involved. I also think it's important and relevant to indicate how other people took it. Obviously the trial attorney did not see a problem with it and agreed to it. This isn't an instance where the court is saying something off the cuff from the bench, where maybe there's a defense attorney who doesn't want to be cowed. This is an instance in where the judge was obviously very conscientiously trying to create a, an instruction that would be both correct and informative, and asked for trial counsel's input and got it. And that was, we're good, judge. and so. Yes, the syntax is different in the one instance in which the court used it. However, throughout this trial, the crime scene is how people refer to the scene and not simply people who were advocating for it Um, in the sense of the DNA experts in this case because there was a number of DNA experts based on the evidence in the instant case involving Mrs. Wood's murder and rape and the previous rapes of uh, the individuals who uh, Mr. Willis had victimized. The DNA experts very, very clearly discussed the types of, basically the types of sources of evidence and they compared two different types of sources and they would refer to uh, their database having samples from crime scene evidence and samples from individuals. This was something that was delineated in trial by the experts as the way that they talk about it and so The state sees that there was no comment on the evidence here because in the context of this particular trial, it was clear that this was a reference to placing the jury as to which statement they were supposed to review. I'd also point out that this continues to be how people think about it. When the trial attorney testified to the motion for new trial uh, hearing, uh, the prosecutor was trying to recall her attention to the statements for another issue. And she specifically stopped him and said, is this the is this the crime scene statement? So still even at that point, that was the way that people delineated where this statement fell. And so I submit that this is not in any way a comment under either the old or the new rules. Uh, further, uh, just additionally, the court did very conscientiously premise what he was saying with the word allegedly indicating like these are the allegations and moved on. Let me see if I understand what you're asking the court to do in this instance. I think your initial position is you want this court to say that there was no comment on the evidence. That is absolutely correct. But if we consider this that there was a comment on the evidence then under the new rule we would you would want this. Would want us to say that there was an obligation to object. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, essentially, I would refer to the whole court opinion of the Court of Appeals in the Quiller case as well as the dicta that's provided in footnotes in this court's Pyatt case. Um, the dissent in the whole court, court of appeals case by Judge McFadden uh, basically describes what would be the opposite view, as the the view that would help the defendant. Uh, That view concedes that it is a procedural rule. Uh, The question is, who is it a procedural rule pointed towards? And this is in Title 17, it's the criminal code, and this one squarely puts the emphasis on the reviewing court. And that's not a typical thing in Title 17. That was very, very specific, and so, basically all other rules of the retroactive application of statutes were met as far as Judge McFadden's dissent was concerned. The only question for him was who is the relevant, what is the relevant point? And I submit that the majority in Quiller as well as the dicta in Pyatt correctly identifies that this is specifically directed towards appellate review. Um, As was mentioned earlier, this is something that is not so much about the objection itself but how it is dealt with later on. Um, Much was said earlier about how an attorney is to to deal with this. I just want to point out in this case there there would have been no problem objecting had there been a problem, had this not been something that the trial attorney believed to just clearly indicate what everybody else had indicated that they were referring to that scene. it goes to basically the enforcement mechanisms it is quite frankly this set of judges enforcing a rule on other set of judges uh and so i think that it's quite clearly places the relevant portion on the review portion as opposed to at the instant t- point where it occurred at trial
2: on the other hand we've we've said under old 17857 that if for example, the trial court recognizes that he or she made an error in commenting on something and gives the jury an instruction, pay no attention to what I told you. I can't control anything. My comments don't mean anything. That doesn't cure the error. So so what good would an
3: objection from trial counsel be uh, under the rule. Well, and well, look at this particular case. Uh, the objection was to language that was decided before it was ever presented to the jury. Uh, that's the point in time in which this attorney uh, had agreed to it. That's his case, but, but if the trial court had not given out the
2: written instructions and had just read, read the instructions at trial and counsel stood up and said, oh, I object, Your Honor, and the trial court said, well, oh, let me rephrase, never mind, would that, would that under the old rule
3: limit appellate review? I believe there are cases, and I apologize that I do not have them on the front of my page right here, Uh, but there are cases where the court said something that was arguably a comment and then somebody objected, and then they quickly clarify that they're talking about allegations or uh, something else of that matter. Uh, So I do believe that that has been the case. So Uh, not simply a curative instruction, but affirmatively changing what the court had said to the Correct, to make that absolutely clear. Now, as far as the curative uh, instruction, uh, one of the more common instructions that we see in the charges of the court uh, is the charge that by no comment of this court did I have an opinion or express any intimation as to far as what the evidence was in the case. Uh, In in Rouse, where there was a comment on a required element, uh, this court, the majority of this court found that that was insufficient to cure it. Uh, I submit to the court first of all that that is a relevant consideration. That's a consideration that's been noted in numerous cases both before and since Rouse. But regardless of the old rule I submit to you that that is a consideration to take into consideration for <laughs> under the new rule of plain error review. Uh, because it is peculiar in an in a case where at best for the defense's position, at best, the statement by the court was ambiguous. The state submits that it was clear that it was referring simply to place as far as, to to orient the uh, jury as far as which the instructions place. Uh, But it seems very peculiar for us to believe that a jury is thinking that this court is trying to send them secret signals through something that is Something like a comment involved in this case, and yet turn around and say, "I am not sending you any such signals." Uh, I think that that is a relevant consideration, and in this particular case, well, why couldn't a jury conclude that? I mean, if if the judge was trying to send secret signals, and then somebody noticed and objected to it, you know, because of the instruction that is is so clear that I am not commenting on the evidence. At no point have I done that. Uh, the jury well, maybe I was to take trying to, and somebody noticed, and so now I'm trying to just you know, sweep it under the rug. Jurors follow instructions as far as, I'm telling you that this is, I've not commented on the evidence as far as that is concerned, and so that is what I would, I would refer to that. Um, juries can always act whimsically in reality. Uh, they can factually do something that the law does not permit them to, uh, but that doesn't mean that that's how the law should orient itself to assume that um, a jury is going to do something specious and against the instructions of the court.
2: Presuming that we decide the new statute applies and that plain error is the standard
3: that we apply here, why isn't this plain error? This isn't plain error because, as I said before, the state submits that it's not a comment. So you don't get the okay, Assuming before. it is a comment. Assuming it is a comment. Why it plain error? It, going through the steps it is isn't an obvious comment, if it is a comment, um, given the context of the case. Uh, Also given steps three and four, where at three you're dealing with uh, the substantial rights of the defendant, given the instructions in this case, where more than just that one instruction was involved, the court clearly again and again indicated to the jury that they were the ones that were required to find facts, uh, that uh, it's your duty to determine the facts and to apply the law to those facts as you find them to be about the presumption of innocence. Uh, the court specifically instructed the jury that uh, about the state's burden and that it was its burden to disprove any defenses. Uh, all of those taken as a whole together counsels against it. Another thing is uh, the prosecutor did indicate multiple times that Ms. Woods's body was dumped. She did not agree with the defense's arguments in closing, which is where this came up. <clears throat> Um, but there are previous times in the state's original closing before the defense got up where I believe the prosecutor indicated um, he had killed her, he had raped her, and he had dumped her. That was in the state's opening closing. Uh, The question for the defense was who killed her, who raped her, who dumped her, Uh, and the evidence of that as far as the defendant is concerned in this case is overwhelming. Uh, given the the massive evidence against him in this particular case, uh, So what you want us to say is that even if the new statute applies, this is so ambiguous that it cannot
0: amount to being plain error
3: what i 'm saying is slightly different, your honor. Mm. Um, that would be if the old applied that I would say even with that it 's not a comment. Mm. under the new one, I believe that given all of the information involved in this case, it is absolutely. In no way, something that is to be reversed under the current 17857B.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, if it was under the super plain rule of the, old case, of the old case, the defense would have a stronger case if y'all got past that first hurdle. I submit that, again, it's not a comment, but that would be where they want to focus because that's the only time that they can overcome it. And I think that's something that. Um, Opposing counsel kind of conceded is that if it goes under current plain rule, it'd be a very easy decision for your for your honors
0: Counsel the the terms crime scene and and scene of the crime uh, does the state agree with? uh, The defense that in ordinary usage one of those terms refers to the place
3: where a crime was committed and the other does not I do not believe that there is a difference uh, I believe as in this case is talking about where forensic evidence is, is collected as many people testified throughout the case. Uh, there is, I believe that I'm not alone uh, in colluding the two in the sense of believing that they are both essentially the same. In the defendant's own brief on page five footnote 32, the definition that's provided is crime scene and that's to define the scene of the crime. And so even in the defense own brief, they, they use the two in, the sim, in a similar sense.
0: Well, I, I, I guess if I understand uh, Mr. Fleischman correctly, he would say the scene of the crime is a crime scene, but not every crime scene is the scene of a crime.
3: I don't watch CSI, so I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I don't watch CSI either. I don't make, I don't make, I don't parse that difference. Thank you very much. Thank you,
0: Mr. Armstrong. <coughs> Mr. Fleischman, in rebuttal.
2: Okay. <coughs> I just ask to be very clear on what counsel said during the charge conference. Did counsel say when they were talking about what charge to give or how to distinguish the defendant's two statements that that uh, there was a statement at the scene? Um, yes, I believe so. Okay. What When she said at the scene, what did she mean by "at the scene" if not at at least a crime a scene of a crime? At the crime scene, Your Honor.
1: I think that's what she meant. I think she meant the place where police were conducting an investigation and gathering evidence. Okay. If there are no other questions, thank
0: you very much. Thank you, gentlemen. And uh, the argument well argued. Please uh, be safe going back. Thank you.